If you would please open your Bibles this evening to the 15th chapter of Romans. As uh, Dr. Barkley mentioned this morning, we are in this final section of Romans, have been some for some weeks now. As we've said before, it's, it's enormously significant that Paul, the great apostolic theologian of the early church, did not end his most systematic and comprehensive, theologically speaking, of all his letters. It did not end this letter with that astonished doxology that he utters at the end of chapter 11. But instead, he goes on all the way to the end, exhorting the congregation of believers in Rome in some wonderfully practical ways things about their life together, how to live out the Christian life. And it goes on all the way to the end of the epistle. And I think there's there's something implied in that, which is that theology that floats forever above human life and is never applied to our lives is like theoretical physics. It may all be true, sure, but you can get along quite well without knowing it. Not so with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is forever landing in our hearts. It's touching down in our personal experience. It's making sense of our daily existence. And I think all that is seen very clearly here in chapter 15. Now we've already in recent sermons looked at several things in this chapter. First we've seen Paul's mission. And secondly, we've seen his method. The mission, as he clearly states in verse 16, was to be a minister to the Gentiles, to bring about their obedience. That uh, somewhat odd language is priestly in nature. Paul sees himself as serving as a steward of the end of the ages reconciliation that Christ has made possible between Jew and Gentile. And as for his method, well, we saw that last Sunday in Pastor Will's sermon, where Paul employs the simple but potent means of spirit-blessed, prayer-guided preaching for his method. Verse 20, mission and method. And now, tonight, in addition to his mission and his method, tonight we're going to talk about the motor that drives it all. This is the, to mix the metaphors tonight, this is the secret sauce. This is the, the power source. This is the hidden spring, the one root of all true religion. So turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 15, and we're beginning with verse 22 tonight and continuing through verse 33. Give your attention now to the public reading of God's holy word. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. 
But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray together. O Lord, the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word abides forever. May the words of my mouth this evening and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For we pray for the sake of our Redeemer and our Rock, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Now as I have said earlier, uh, the Apostle Paul has told us in this important 15th chapter about the mission, the method, and now the motor of his ministry. I'll explain that. But first this, as he starts out tonight's section in verse 22, he says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to see you. Now that reason, as we saw over the last several weeks, was his mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles who had not heard it yet. But since those doors, those opportunities provided by providence had for now been closed to him, he would come to them, look at verse 23 and going into 24 now, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. You see, it's always about the mission for Paul. When he can't get a foothold in a region that has not heard the gospel, he's going to go to a church that has heard it and perhaps at times has struggled to live out their life together as Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. Either way, as we see here, it is always, always, Always 
about the mission. You know, multiple times this week as I uh, prepared this, this last week, as I prepared this lesson, I had a, the same thought. It's a thought I've had for a number of years here now, and that's just this. If it were within my power to do one practical thing for every faithful Presbyterian church in every faithful Presbyterian denomination in our country, I know exactly what it would be. I would give them a senior pastor with the vision for missions and the tenacity to pursue mission-mindedness in the life of God's church in the way that we enjoy here at Sovereign Grace with Dr. Bill Barkley. Many of us have supported missions for a long time, but Bill takes it to a different level. In truth, his passion for missions echoes the passion of the apostle himself. For Paul was, as as we often say today, Paul was all about it. He was all about it. Paul says in verse 24 that his planned visit to the Roman congregation would serve as a stop on his way to evangelize Spain. Now this would have been Paul's fourth great missionary journey. Relentlessly, he pressed forward in his work. Once the the great Uh, missionary David Livingston was asked by the London Missionary Society where he wanted to go next as a missionary of Christ. And his immediate answer was, anywhere, as long as it is forward. Well, in verses 22 to 24, as we have seen, Paul shares with his readers his plan to go forward. Then, in verses 25 to 29, he shares his present situation. And then finally, in verses 30 to 33, he gives his plea to them. So again, the the basic outline of tonight's passage is Paul's plan, Paul's present, and Paul's plea. And don't ask me to say those quickly together. First, the great apostle of Jesus shares with his readers his plan for his future. A plan to push forward into Spain by coming for a a visit on the way to them in Rome. But first, he also wants to share about his present circumstances. Look with me at this, this middle section I'm describing now and begins in verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's present moment 
is actually absorbed, if you've noticed this, it's absorbed in doing the work of a deacon by taking offerings from the Gentile congregations he visits to give to the needy saints who are living in Jerusalem. And this is diaconal work. In verse 25, the phrase bringing aid is from the same Greek word for deacon or servant. Paul notes that two congregations, one in Macedonia and one in Achaia, were pleased, notice the word there, pleased, to take a contribution for the poor Jewish Christians back to Jerusalem. Notice the language of pleasure or being pleased. You know, I, I, I sometimes hear, uh, well-intended folks say, you know, we ought to give till it hurts. And my response has, has always been when it comes to giving to the church and to the calls of missions, uh, giving till it hurts doesn't go nearly far enough. We need to give until it brings spiritual pleasure to us. And, and that's well past the point of mere hurting. From the private letters of Francis Havergal, the hymn writer who penned the familiar line, Take my silver and my gold, her biographers noted a particular letter that she wrote to a, a close personal friend. It's at the same time period that she wrote that hymn with that familiar line, which of course is the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, which we just sang recently here at Sovereign Grace. But in that private letter, Havergal told her friend that she had put all her gold jewelry and all her silver jewelry and a jeweled chest that she described in the letter as being fit for a countess, She put all that into a box that was to be sent to the church missionary society. She said to her friend, I don't need to tell you that I never packed a box with such pleasure. Christians should give until it brings joy, pleasure in the Lord. But to be clear, the apostles' purpose in this offering for the poor in Jerusalem was not primarily to provide spiritual pleasure to the Gentile givers to the fund. That was just a happy byproduct. That was a, was a consequence of it. But the real purpose is hinted at, I think, in verse 27. And that purpose, in the words of One of my seminary professors, he was one of the better ones I had. I did have a few good ones at Union Seminary. That purpose was to, quote, actualize the unity of God's people through mutual indebtedness. We usually hear debt referred to in a positive manner. To actualize the unity of God's people through mutual indebtedness. What does that mean? Well, as Paul says here, the Gentile believers that he serves every day in his ministry, they're already in debt to the Jewish Christians in a spiritual way through the gospel. After all, Jesus himself was a Jew. His immediate disciples were Jews. How fitting then 
How fitting then if the Jewish church in Jerusalem also comes to feel a kind of debt to the Gentile Christians because of their material support of them in their hour of need. Then there would be this mutual indebtedness. You see, Paul is is doing what he can to strengthen the bonds of brotherhood through enabling the collection of this deacon's fund for the Jerusalem church's impoverished members. Make no mistake, the work of the deacon is not an add-on to the gospel ministry. Diaconal service is integral, integral to the gospel And make no mistake about this either. Reconciliation among people was integral to Paul's own mission. Especially reconciliation through Christ of the Jew and the Gentile. Which, by the way, I always remind myself, covers everybody in the world. I mean, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. This was absolutely central in Paul's view of, of the kingdom of God, overcoming this Jew-Gentile fracture. And by the way, in today's world, the primary driving force, we're told, and in some sense is true, of division between people is racial division. But it's interesting, that was not the case in the first century. I mean, there, people always have their prejudices, but racism of the sort that we deal with today in some places still is uh, rooted in, in, in 19th and 20th century pseudosciences designed to justify agricultural, industrial level uh, slavery, uh, racial slavery. That's a new phenomenon in the world. Slavery is not new. Racial slavery is new in that sense. And that's why we talk so much about it today, but that was not the case in the first century. It was this chasm, at least from the Jewish perspective, it was this chasm between Jew and Gentile. This was the great divide. And Christ, Paul said, had overcome that. Christ had broken down that dividing wall of hostility that had existed for what seemed to be forever. You know, I said at the beginning of this message that gospel theology always touches down into real life. And nowhere is that more true than the need to heal the great divides between human beings. Not from leveling out all truths in life into a bland, oatmeal-like tolerance of everything so nobody will be offended by anything, which of course only means they'll be offended by everything, but instead by by the working of love through the potent, particular, and persuasive truths of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. This is what it does. And so it could not be more practical, it could not be more relevant Just this last week, one of those really beautiful mornings the Lord gave us before the rains came, I was out walking my pup around the the neighborhood. Now, the neighborhood Nancy and I live in has become like a lot of Charlotte neighborhoods. It's become more and more international. 
And as we were walking down the sidewalk, we saw another person coming towards us. As she got closer, I realized she probably, I'm not certain, but probably was from India, a young woman. And as we approached each other, I saw her eyes go to Roxy, and she started to smile. Well, if you've ever seen Roxy, you know why she was smiling. Who wouldn't? But then her eyes met mine, and all the smile evaporated in a moment, and her head went down. And, of course, I understand that. I understand it. She, She is of a different culture, different race, probably a different language. She's female. She's young. I'm old. And, you know, it's just a small moment. But in a way, it's not small at all. In a way, it signifies the great anguish and sorrow of being a human being. The alienation, one from another, that is natural to us now in our state of sin. Oh, to see everyone united through Jesus Christ. That was Paul's ultimate mission in his life. And if he could help actualize the unity of God's people through mutual indebtedness, then he would gladly be an alms-gathering deacon for Jesus. Are you prepared to do anything you can to preserve and advance the unity and the fellowship of all God's people and especially this congregation of God's people? This next year promises to be one of the most potentially divisive years in our nation's history due to the polarized and poisonous politics that divide our nation. Apparently we have settled for that as Americans. I believe it is possible, perhaps even likely now, barring some divine intervention, that the church in America will face temptations to division and infighting that make the COVID years look like a cakewalk. Beloved, prepare yourselves now to guard the unity of the church by transcending these poisonous politics with love for all the brethren, all of them. I beg you to do this. I'll be praying for you as you do this. Paul was willing to play the role of a humble deacon for a season in order to cement the friendship and the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ. For if he could serve the Lord in this way and finally deliver to them what had been collected, literally, if we translated it strictly literally, it would say, seal to them this fruit, which again is priestly language. Paul knew, he says in verse 20, that he would come to Rome. If he did all of that, he would come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Do you know the fullness of the blessing of Christ in your life? 
I mean, wouldn't you want more than anything else, wouldn't you want the knowledge of the fullness of the blessing of Christ? To know that you rise up in the morning with His real heavenly blessing every day. To know as you pause your work and eat at your lunch table that in that moment you are under His knowing blessing. To sense as you lay down to sleep at night that you have the blessing of the ascended Son of God. And that by His Spirit, He kisses you goodnight. You don't have to be apostle, an apostle of Jesus to have the blessing of Jesus. In fact, if you try to be somebody or something great or famous or remarkable or anything other than who God has made you to be and providentially positioned you to be in your life, then you will actually forfeit that full blessing. Paul received the fullness of Christ's blessing, not because he was a famous apostle. It's because he did his will. That's all. That's all. My friend, as you simply obey the Lord Jesus each day in the straightforward and obvious ways that do present themselves to you in life, you too will in fact have the fullness of the blessing of the Lord Christ. You really will. You really do. As Kevin DeYoung's newest book now famously declares in its remarkable title, only only Kevin can get by with a title like this, Impossible Christianity, Why Following Jesus Does Not Mean You Have to Change the World, Be an Expert in Everything, Accept Spiritual Failure, and Feel Miserable Pretty Much All the Time. Now that's a, that's a title. Kevin points to the pleasure that it's possible to experience in daily living, in serving a kindly and merciful God who loves to be kind and merciful, who's always pleased with our sincere, if imperfect, efforts to serve Him. Properly understood, one can even say that for the believer, God is easy to please, if not easy to satisfy. Seek, seek and trust in the fullness of the blessing of Christ in your life. And so, we finally come to the plea that the apostle makes. He shared his plans now for the future. He's described his present circumstances. And now in verses 30 to 33, he makes his plea to the congregation in Rome, and it goes something like this I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So that's it. That's his big ask. That you pray for him. 
But then he's not asking here for some casually popped off mini prayer. He's asking for the church in Rome to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. The Greek term for strive together is a compound word that means to strive or wrestle together with another. It's rooted in a word which in English we translate as agony. This is frequent, earnest, longing prayer. This is prayer that's rightly described as the labor of prayer. Paul pleads that they will join him in a concert of serious prayer for his ministry, specifically for two things. That he not be captured or killed by unbelieving Jews when he is in Jerusalem. He wisely and, 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 and I think carefully does not call them unbelieving Jews. He says unbelievers. He's not stirring up anti-Semitism, far be it. He just calls them unbelievers here in Jerusalem. Protection from them. And then that the faithful ones, the faithful church in Jerusalem, would receive his offering with gladness and with grace and humility. You know, it takes humility. It takes grace to let others help you in your time of need. This is not always easy for us. It's a conversation I often have with folks in our church who may need some assistance from our deacon's fund. I always tell them it is a grace from the Lord to be willing to let your fellow Christians help you. Even if the givers do not know exactly who receives the deacon's fund contribution, still it's a humbling thing to receive them. We understand, I understand that. As I've so often said, when, when you allow the church to help during a time of, of financial crisis, you're actually enabling many others in the church to fulfill their calling from Christ. When you are willing to receive assistance, you are, and I believe this, you are serving the Lord and you are actually under the fullness of his blessing. How do we find the spiritual confidence in God to labor in prayer for others in this serious way? There is but one answer to that. It is the love that comes from true faith. Now don't let your eyes glaze over here at the hearing of the word love, because if you miss this last point, you're going to miss the main thing in it all. I do hope you've noticed the evidences of Christian love in this passage we read tonight. Paul has spoken of his, look at the language, earnest longing to come see them. Indeed, how he had longed for many years, he says, to come see them in person. Verse 23. He speaks in verse 24 of anticipating the enjoyment of their company. And now in verse 30, he calls them brothers yet again, asking that they pray for him all to the end, that he may come to them with joy and be refreshed by their company. Verse 32. 
See, Paul, Paul loved people. He loved his fellow believers especially. And one can imagine he even liked them, which is sort of harder than loving them sometimes. Being in the fellowship did not seem to be a labor for him, but a source of his own refreshment. But you know, that love for people didn't spring naturally out of Paul's inherent goodness. When he acted naturally, it was when he persecuted the church mercilessly and held the coats of those who stoned believers to death. That's old natural Saul right there. But Paul's love for the church and for other people generally sprang from his experience of Christ's own love to him. In fact, the most important words in my personal judgment, the most important words in our passage tonight come in reference to that subject that I just mentioned in verse 30. When Paul asks that they pray by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. The love of Christ and the love of the Spirit of Christ is what animates our prayers, changes our hearts, and gives us love for others. As I said at the beginning of this message, chapter 15 as a whole is all about the mission of the gospel, the method of the gospel, and now we see the motor of the gospel, which is the love of Christ. What drives it all, what gives life to it all, what strengthens and sustains it all. And what makes fellowship with other believers a joy and a refreshment to a person is the sovereign and supernatural and all-conquering love of the Spirit of Christ. As I preach this last evening sermon to you in my ministry with you, I am struck by the need to say that if I have any regrets in almost 40 years of full-time ministry, it is that I did not stress at every point in every single sermon the immensity and the intensity of the love of Christ. But that's a theme That is the theme that is always in season. It is always fitting. It is always full of glory. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. The love of the Spirit of Christ. For Christ is a person to be known and to be admired and to be enjoyed. And to be loved. Waves of affection for him should well up in us. His, his love was that he loved us when we could not be loved. The Greek word Paul uses for love here in verse 30 is agape, which represents God's willful decision to love us freely, not because of who we were, but in spite of who we were. This divine love dances in this text. It's the hidden spring that supplies its flow. 
It's the motor that drives the entire system of Christian truth. Except that I think as I have prepared this message, maybe motor isn't the right word after all, because motor is something that is is typically planned and built and installed, whereas the love of God is utterly natural to him. It's who he truly is by nature. The Apostle John said that God is love. Not a motor then, but a fountain. A fountain that has flowed forever and will flow forever. A fountain which to drink from is life, even if you die. And to not drink from it is death, even if you live. John Owen, fitting perhaps to quote John Owen at the end here. John Owen said it this way, If all the world set themselves to drink free grace, mercy, and pardon, drawing water continually from the wells of salvation, if they should set themselves to draw from one single promise, with an angel standing by and crying out, Drink, O my friends, drink abundantly. Take so much grace and pardon as shall be abundantly sufficient for the world of sin that is in each one of you. Drink. Even then, they would not be able to sink the grace of the promise one hair's breadth. For there is enough there for millions of worlds, if they were, because it flows into it from an infinite, bottomless fountain. John Owen did not know that there are millions of worlds. We know that there are actually billions upon billions of them in the great galaxies. And if any of them have sentient life forms, this much we know. The great fountain is for them too. Because this is the love of the creator of all. The love of Christ, the cosmic king the supreme love of the all-prevailing Spirit. And it is the lone fountain that formed all things and saved all things for himself and his own glory. To know this love is to be given graces in abundance, including the capacity to be refreshed by the fellowship of other believers and to truly love them. And it is to know that joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So, love the Lord. Love his people. Do so by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Lord, your apostle said he would be refreshed by the fellowship of the congregation in Rome. We thank you for the way in which fellowship with your people is a true means of grace for us. And we thank you that that refreshment doesn't spring in its origin 
in them or in us, but in you. How we thank you for the love of Christ, which is the fountain that has made us and saved us. In his name we pray together. Amen. If you would stand, please, for the benediction. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of God's own blessed Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, be with you all, both now and ever. Amen.